You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me here at Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And today, Bishop Sheen will give us two reflections. The first is on the topic of three kinds of love, and the second will be the meaning of the Mass. And so I would encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. There perhaps is no word more often used in our language than the word love. And today it is so often stated, anything is all right provided you love. Now let me tell you that is not true. Because love is not quite that simple. Unfortunately, we have only one word in the English language for love. And think of the ways we have to use it. I love the New York Mets. I love pickles. I love chickens. I love God. See how confusing it is? The Greeks had three different words for love. And I'm going to give you those three Greek words tonight. I asked Monsignor before I came out, how many in his parish and in this area did he think had forgotten their classical Greek? He said, not over 12. <laughs> so if the rest of you will excuse, I will interpret for that those 12 the meaning of the three Greek words. The first Greek word for love is eros, E-R-O-S, eros. It simply means friendship, human love. Eros was that little Greek god that used to shoot arrows into the earth to make the earth fertile. Eros was not something that, that pushed us toward an object. It was something that pulled us. It was attractive. For example, the love of a person, the love of art, the love of philosophy, the love of the good life. All that was Eros. To give you an example of that love, here is the engagement of G.K. Chesterton. 
If there are any unmarried men in this audience who have not yet proposed and who intend to, I would suggest that they take this down in shorthand. And all of you married women will regret that your proposal was not in this language. Chesterton wrote to his future wife or spoke to her and said, There are four great lamps of thanksgiving burning before me. The first, that I was born out of the same earth as you. Two, I have tried to love everything in the universe as a remote preparation for loving you. Three, I have never run after strange women. You cannot understand how much this prepares a man for true love. Four, my life ends here. It has led me to you. That is Eros. I once asked a husband what he would like to be if he could come back to this earth two years after he died, and he said, my wife's second husband. And that is Eros. And I once heard a man pay a toast to his wife at table. You have to wait until the end of this, or it's a kind of a shocking toast. He raised his glass and said, here's to a face that would stop a clock and bid all time stand still to contemplate her beauty. That's Eros. Then came Freud. Freud changed Eros into the erotic. Then Eros meant sexy. And this became, then, the modern understanding of love. The Greeks never intended that that kind of love should so degenerate. And the new erotic love takes the fig leaf. It once used to be put in Greek sculpture over the secret parts of man and woman, and it puts it over the face. So that the person is not loved but only the experience. You drink the water, you forget the glass. And this is modern love, eros, erotic rather. Now we come to the second Greek word for love. And you all know it, everyone. It is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. You know Philly because you know Philadelphia. Adelphos in Greek is brother and Philia love, and hence Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philanthropic, Philia love, anthropos man, love of humanity. Philia is not a love of person for person. Philia is a love for all humanity. Regardless of race, creed, color, simply because people are made to the image and likeness of God. That is philia. Now you say, but I can't like everyone. That's true. Because liking is in the emotions, in the feelings. 
But we can love everyone because love is in the will and it can be commanded. Hence our blessed Lord said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You understand the difference now between liking and loving? I can make it a little clearer this way. I don't like chicken. Monsignor had chicken for dinner one day. <laughs> now, why don't I, 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 why don't I like chicken? Well, because when I was a boy, my father used to send me out to a farm that he owned about 30 miles outside of the city. And the tenant farmer, in order to get in good with the Sheen kids, gave us chicken in those days every day except Friday. So that in the course of my young life, I rang the necks of 48,310 hens. At night, I don't have nightmares, I have night hens. I have visions of headless chicks squirming in barnyard dust, so I don't like chicken. But if you invited me to dinner and you had only chicken, and you would have been very embarrassed if I didn't eat, I would eat the chicken. I would love it because I could command myself to eat it. That's the difference between liking and loving. We may not be able to like everyone, but we can love them. We can get above our emotional attitudes. There was a novelist in Russia at the close of the last century by the name of Dostoevsky who gave us an interesting story about this kind of love. It seems as if an angel went down to hell and asked an old woman in hell, have you ever in your life done a good deed for anyone? She says, yes. Once I gave a carrot to a beggar. Very well, said the angel. I am going to let down a carrot into hell. And you get hold of it, and I will pull you out. The angel let down the carrot, and the old lady grabbed hold of it. And the angel began pulling out the old lady. And, of course, thousands of people grabbed hold of the old lady to get out of hell. Jesus, get off. This is for me. And then they all fell back into hell. Because there was no love of fellow man. I once asked a missionary in the Pacific Islands, what was the greatest virtue of the people? Well, he said, I can tell you the greatest virtue in terms of the greatest vice. It is the sin of kaipo, the sin of eating alone. They would go without food for three or four days until they found someone to share it. That is philia. An East Indian by the name of Singh, a Christian, wanted to go into Tibet to evangelize. 
he needed a guide to take him over the Himalaya mountains. And then gone up a short distance, and they were cold and tired, and they sat down on the snow. And Singh said to the Tibetan guide, I think I hear someone moaning down there in the crevice. The Tibetan guide said, don't be silly. We're almost dead ourselves. But Singh found a man in the crevice, crevice, pulled him out, took him to the village beneath, and was refreshed by that act of charity, came back and found that the Tibetan guide was where he left him, frozen to death. He had not warmed himself by an act of charity. This is the supreme act of philanthropy. I told you about this friend of mine who was 14 years in the communist prison. And he was so much beaten by the communists that he developed lung trouble and tuberculosis and was considered at one time the sickest man in the prison. A new prisoner was brought in who hid in his heel a lump of sugar. He took the lump of sugar out of the heel in prison and said to the other prisoners, who needs this most? And they said, give it to Richard Wormbrand. It was given to my friend and he said, I immediately thought of others who needed that sugar. I hadn't seen sugar in six years. But I put the sugar on the bed next to me. Two years later, that sugar had gone the round of all of the prisoners and came back again to his bed. And then he started on another round. Imagine all of these victims of the communist persecution in their adversity being so devoted one to another. About eight years ago, I was on a plane going from New York to Chicago. And as the plane took off, the stewardess sat down alongside of me. She was a ravishingly beautiful girl. Celibacy doesn't blind us, you know. I can look at the menu without ordering. She said, do you remember me? I said, no, I don't. I ought to, but I don't. Well, she said, two years ago on this plane, I sat with you for 20 minutes. And I remember every word you said. What did I say? Well, you began by saying you are a very beautiful girl. Did you know that of all the gifts that God gives, the one that he gets back last and least of all is the gift of beauty? He gives money and owners use it for the poor. Here's the gift of song, and people sing for his glory. 
But too often when God gives beauty, he gets back nothing but a pile of old bones. So inasmuch as you are so exceptionally endowed, why don't you give your beauty to people who have never seen anything beautiful? That's what you said. Well, I said, that sounds just exactly like me. That's what I would say. <laughs> she said, I've had two years to think it over. And now I'm ready to do anything. When? Now. All right, come to my office and I will tell you where you were going. She said, tell me now. I'm ready to go. All right, you're going to a leper colony in Vietnam. So I sent her to a leper colony in Vietnam. She has a little jeep, drives around the villages and searches, particularly under bridges, because when lepers are driven out of villages, they hide under the bridges. And then she takes them to a leprosarium and with a doctor cares for these people. And in one of her letters, she said, I do not know whether they ever think that they are looking at anything beautiful, but I know that I am the gratitude of these good people. This is philia, the second kind of love. Now we come to the third. I was just looking at my watch to see how long I've been talking. I've been talking about over 20 minutes. And, and you know, it's amazing. Isn't it the way they stay awake? I don't understand. I know if I were down there listening to me, I would go to sleep. <laughs> there was an Irish family, my dear young people, who moved from Dublin to Boston. And one of the sons moved to Chicago. The father died in Boston. And the son in Chicago wired his brother in Boston and said, what were father's last words? And the telegram came back. Father had no last words. Mother was with him to the end. <laughs> so you probably wonder whether father has last words. Now we're coming to the third Greek word, and there's no English equivalent for this, so you have to learn the word. A-G-A-P-E. Agape or agape, as it is sometimes pronounced. A-G-A-P-E. It was used before Christ, but never with any fixed meaning. But when a new love came to this earth, the love of God for man, the word eros would not do. The word philia would not do. So the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament writers to seek about for some other word that would express this abounding, boundless love of God for man. And they hit upon the word agapine, agapine in the verb form, 
And it is used 250 times in the New Testament. The reading that you heard tonight from John. If you went into the original Greek, you would find that that word was agape. Love. Pick up the 13th chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The whole 13th chapter is on love. It's the most beautiful passage on love in the world. And the Greek word is the one I gave you. You see, we had to have a new word. The world had never thought of sacrificial love. It's easy to love those who love you, as our Lord said. But to love when you're unloved, that's heroic. God loves me. Now, I am not particularly lovable. And God loves you. Now, maybe two or three of you will admit, too, that you're not particularly lovable either. But God loves you anyway. Why does he love you? Why does he love me? He puts his love into us. That's why. Therefore, we become lovable. As a mother, for example, will put her love into a child, regardless of what that child is, whether useful or not. So God puts his love into us. To give you a, an example of what this love is like, because it's so unearthly. Well, suppose a lifeguard at a beach is asked if there was a very beautiful girl drowning out there on the surf, would you risk your life to save her? He very likely would say, yes, I would, I would. Particularly if she's very beautiful, I would risk my life. Well, suppose there's a person out there dying in the surf who did you and your family a lot of harm. Would you rescue that person? He would think about it. Now, that's the way God loved us. When we were unlovable, when we were his enemies, he loved us. Suppose this were a courtroom. A judge is here seated on the bench. Before him is his own son who committed murder. There is no doubt whatever of the son's guilt. He had murdered a boy. The father is bound to execute justice and he condemns his son to death. Immediately after rendering the sentence, he steps down from the bench and says to his son, I will die for you. That would be mercy. He would be just when he was sentencing him to death, merciful when he took his place. That is what God does for us, but that is not the total picture. Suppose at the moment that the son was condemned to death, that the boy who had been murdered walked in alive. The son would say, you say that I killed this boy? 
You sentence me to death? There's no murder. See, he's alive. I demand to be freed. And so we can say, we have been guilty of the death of Christ. We nailed him with that cross. As I look at him, I see there my own life. My autobiography has been written. The pen, the nails, the blood, the ink, the skin, the parchment. I'm guilty of that death. And on Easter Sunday morning when he rises from the dead, I can say, See, he's alive! I'm free! That's the meaning of agape, of love. Now come back to what I said at the beginning. Is it true now that anything is all right provided you love? No. What kind of love? Eros? Erotic? Philia? Agape? And this is the love to which we are committed. Not just a sentimental love. But the love for the unlovable. For those who are anti-love. It is interesting. I don't know. Should, no. Should I go into this or not? So the story of St. Peter. Huh? Well, I was going to conclude, but I will go into this love scene. I was at the spot myself. As a matter of fact, you have a picture of it. I was at the Sea of Galilee, where there are two great rocks. The Sunday after Easter, our blessed Lord appeared at that spot because the Gospel of John tells us that our Lord came to the shore where there was a fire and bread near the fire. Seven men were fishing in the boat. Our Lord said to them, Have you caught anything? Now remember, this is the Sunday after the resurrection. Keep that in mind. The Sunday after the resurrection. They could dimly perceive in the morning mist a figure. And John said, It's the Lord, the risen Lord. And Peter was there and he, he'd been naked in the boat and he put something around him, plunges into the sea and swims a hundred yards to get to our Lord. But then, as we read this story, we find that Peter is back in the boat in a little while dragging in the net with 153 fishes. Why, if our Peter was so anxious to see our Lord that he plunged into the sea, why did he go back to the boat? Because of that fire. Those tongues of fire were eloquent tongues. 
They were reminders of a fire of ten nights before, when three girls, one after another, came up to Peter and said to him, Have you been with the master? He said, I don't even know the man. And they reminded him of the night he denied our blessed Lord, and he couldn't stand the fire. Those flames were like the fire of hell, and he plunged again into the deep. Then when he came back, the Lord asks him three times, Do you love me? Now listen carefully. There were two in the original gospel, two Greek words that were used in the conversation. One word was philine, philia. The other was agape. I'm going to translate philia by natural human love. I'm going to translate agape by a totally divine, sacrificial, committed love. The conversation is as follows. Simon, son of John, do you love me with the divine, totally committed, sacrificial kind of love? And Peter, who had denied our Lord three times, was not going out on any more limbs. And he said, Lord, you know that I love you in a natural, human, friendly kind of way. Second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with a divine, totally committed, sacrificial love? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you in a human, natural, friendly kind of way. The third time, our Lord said, Simon, son of John, do you love me in a natural, human, friendly kind of way? And Peter was sad. Because the Lord seemed to doubt the other. But the Lord reached down and took the little love that he had and told him to feed his lambs and feed his sheep. And this is the beautiful story of the two meanings of love as they are in the gospel. And may you carry away in the meditation of this evening the kind of love to which you are committed in the gospel. You will always think of that word agape when you see it in reference to the love of our blessed Lord. You know, my good people, we never find perfect love here. Never. Every woman promises a man a love that only God can. And every man promises a woman a love that only God can give. We try to relive the beautiful moments of love, but they cannot be relived. They cannot be recaptured. Why? Because it was not the moment. It was not ourselves. It was the divine that was shooting through us. It was a moment of eternity making use of human love to remind us that our love is not the source of love. All that we ever get are fractions, sparks of love, that's all. Sparks that have fallen from the great hearth of love, which is God. When you understand this mystery, then you will also grasp why your heart is not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. 
Remember the Valentine heart? Always perfect in shape. Your heart isn't that shape. Yours heart is not perfect. There seems to be a little piece missing out of the side of every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a piece that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is that when God made the heart of each and every one of you, he found it so good and so fine and so lovable that he kept a small sample of it in heaven. And then he sent that heart into this world where you would try to capture all the love you could, but where you could never really love with your whole heart because you haven't a whole heart to love with. And you'll never be perfectly happy, never be wholehearted, never be really at peace until you go back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you've been enjoying the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Archbishop Sheen will now give us a reflection entitled, The Meaning of the Mass. Please enjoy. That is the Mass. It has three acts. It's like a great drama. Just suppose that four or five centuries before Christ there was a great drama, because that was the great age of drama. A drama presented that moved hearts, purged souls, which the wise old Greeks said was the purpose of drama anyway. But it was played only once. And if you were at that theater and your soul was bettered because you witnessed the drama, you would say, what a pity. Everyone in the world should see this. How could that be done? Well, it could be done by establishing road companies. New actors, same lines, same drama, but appearing on the different stages of the world. Apply this now to the death of our Lord. This drama was played once. But the night of the Last Supper, our blessed Lord said, I am going to prepare this drama so that it will be enacted all over the world and hearts will be purified and souls purged. So he established road companies. As he said to his apostles and his priests, do this, repeat it. Same lines, same purpose, only the stages are different. We will now follow the three acts of the drama. In the first act, you offer yourself to Christ. Act one. Act two, you die. 
you die with him. Act three, because you died with him, now you get new life. Act one, where you offer yourself as the offertory. Act two, your death with Christ, the consecration. And thirdly, rising to a new life as Holy Communion. Now follow me through these three acts. Act one, you offer yourself. You bring yourself to Christ and say, I want to be one with you in your great act of redemption. When a, when a Mass begins, the Lord looks out from heaven and he says, I can't die again in this nature I took from Mary. This nature is glorified. But Peter, Paul, Mary, Anne, will you give me your human nature? Offer yourself to me and I will die again in you and let you pass through the same stages of life as I passed through. Now, how do you offer yourself to the Lord? Not just by being present. Not just that, but by using symbols of bread and wine. So when the bread and wine is brought to the altar, you are brought to the altar. Why did our Lord say, bring bread and wine? Well, first of all, because no two substances better signify unity than bread and wine. As bread is made from a multiplicity of grains of wheat and wine from a multiplicity of grapes, so we who are many are one in mind and heart with Christ. Then furthermore, when we bring bread and wine, the substances which have most traditionally nourished mankind. When we bring that which gives us life, we're bringing ourselves. And then we're also bringing part of creation. We're, we're taking some elements out of creation, namely bread and wine, and we're saying to God, these are going to be wholly yours. And someday this, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything in creation will be totally subject to you. But this, this is the first fruit of total giving of creation to Christ. So in the offertory, therefore, you become present on the altar. You are on the paten. You are in the chalice. Under the form of bread and wine. That is your symbol. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons the collection is taken up at the offertory is to be a symbol of your self-sacrifice. It buys the bread and wine, helps the sacrifice. You see, if I were pleading for a collection, that's the idea that I would develop. But I'm not. But I merely want to indicate to you now that you're on the altar. That's the end of Act One. Now we come to Act Two. You die. You are crucified. We cannot live to Christ unless we die to our lower nature. So our Lord now is 
representing his death at the consecration, and you are with him, so you die with him. Now I will tell you how that is done. First of all, how do we represent at the consecration of the Mass his death? Now think about this. How did our Lord die on the cross? By the separation of blood from his body. Here were great fountains, fountain in hand, right and left, fountains in the feet, the fountain of the heart. And the very last drop of his blood came from his body with the piercing of the pericordium, the heart, so that our Lord was practically drained, therefore, of blood on the cross. And he died by this tearing apart of blood from body. For as the Old Testament puts it, life is in the blood. Now, we reenact this death by the separate consecration of bread and wine. The priest does not say at the altar, this is my body and my blood. That would be life. But first, this is my body. Then over the wine, this is my blood. That separate consecration of bread and wine is like a tearing apart, a rending asunder of blood from body, and that is the way Christ died on the cross. So we sacramentally reenact the death of Christ at the consecration. But you are with him, so you have to die with him. Die to that which is evil, to pride and lust and envy and gluttony, sloth, avarice. At the moment of consecration, therefore, you have to say the words of consecration in their secondary sense. The primary meaning of the words of consecration we know. This becomes the body of Christ, this becomes the blood of Christ. But there is a secondary meaning. And at the consecration, you should be saying as every priest says, when I consecrate the bread and wine, I always have not only the intention of making present the body and blood of Christ, but I say to myself, as you must say, this is my body. This is my blood. I care not if the accidents of my life remain, my duties, my avocation, my responsibility in life. These are species. Let them stay as they are, but what I am, substantially, body, soul, intellect, will, I'm thine, O Lord. This is the totality of myself. I die with you. That's the consecration. So you're dead with Christ. But... No one ever dies to Christ without receiving new life. Now we come to the communion, Act 3. And this is one of the beautiful mysteries of communion. 
to understand it, I'm going to let you view nature. In the springtime, if the sunlight, the phosphates, and the carbons in the earth could speak, they would say to the plants, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. If the plants could speak in the grass of the field, they would say to the animals, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And if the plants and animals could speak, they would say to us, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And Christ says to us in communion, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And the law of transformation holds sway. Chemicals are transformed into plants, plants into animals, animals into man, and man into Christ. We now, therefore, have his life in us. This becomes, then, the great moment of love. We've died to that which is lower. Now we're going to have the higher life. And this higher life involves, as in marriage, lover, beloved, and love. The husband gives self to wife. The wife gives self to husband. Out of the lover being defeated by the love of the beloved, there comes the ecstasy of love. And what the union of husband and wife is in marriage, that communion is to the spirit. The union of our soul in Christ, lover and beloved, produces the ecstasy of love. This, then, is the third act. It has another aspect which I will pass over quickly for a matter of time only, and it is forgotten aspect. When we study theology, it's hardly mentioned. In scripture, it's mentioned constantly. And that is that when we receive communion, we have to bear this death of Christ in our lives. We constantly have to deny ourselves in order that the Christ life may emerge. Now see how nature represents that. If the grass and the lilies and the roses could speak, uh, they would say to the, to the air and to the sunlight and the chemicals, would you like to live in me? I'm a plant. You're only crystals. Well, you can't live in me the way you are. You have to be changed. Die to yourself, then you live in me. The animal could speak, it would say to the grass, you cannot see, you cannot taste, you cannot move from place to place, you cannot change from sunlight to shadow. I can. I have a higher kingdom than yours. Would you like to live in my kingdom? Not the way you are. You've got to be taken up from the earth, ground beneath the jaws of death, and then only can you live in my kingdom. To the animals, we say, 
You cannot think. You cannot scan the heavens. I have a higher life than you. Would you like to live in me? Then submit yourself to the knife. Shed your blood. Otherwise, you cannot live in my kingdom. So our Lord says to us, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot, not you will not, you cannot be my disciple. Communion, therefore, is not only the taking in the life of Christ, as I explained, and incidentally for the students of biology, let me tell you that the first process I described is the anabolic, and the sacrifice which I am now describing is the catabolic process of nature. So now in the in St. Paul, we have the second element of communion. St. Paul says, know you not that as often as you eat of this bread or drink of this chalice, you announce the death, the death of the Lord until he come. So communion, therefore, is an incorporation to the higher life of Christ. But inasmuch as we have to go back into the world, we're going to take with him our death. This is the Mass. Do you know that I believe that when we go before the judgment seat of God, our greatest regret is not that we were more faithful to the holy sacrifice of the Mass. What a blessing is our faith. Now, I have no reason to assume, absolutely none, to assume that you good people are not at Mass every morning. Every morning I've been here, look at the crowds. Now, I'm glad to see that you people are, are attendants at daily Mass. This is marvelous. I wouldn't come back some morning, sneak up on you to see if you were here. I wouldn't do that. I just assume that you would be. Now, I hope I've made this clear to you, young people especially, what the Mass is. Always think of it as three acts and how you are united with the cross of our Lord. But since I, I have been tiring to you, and even at the risk of keeping you a little longer, I'm going to tell you a, a story about the Mass and the Eucharist. This incident happened in China. A bishop was arrested by the communists, put in prison, and he told one of the missionary sisters to whom he gave the tabernacle key to remove the Blessed Sacrament from the chapel. It was on the second floor of his house, lest it be defiled by the communists who would take over his residence. The bishop was in prison for two or three years. He wasted away through skin and bones, wore a black stocking cap, a black kimono, was too weak to stand. During the few moments of the day, they were released from the prison. In the prison yard, he had to be supported by two fellow communist, or rather Chinese prisoners. The nun went to the chapel, took the Blessed Sacrament, but she hid it in a loaf of bread. 
And as she closed the door of the chapel and was about to come down, a communist colonel came up the stairs and said, I'm taking over this house. I have the key to the chapel. He tried to open the door and it would not open. He said, here you open it. She said, I can't, my hands are filled with bread. Put the bread on the stairs. She said, the stairs are dirty. Then give me the bread. She said she reached him, the blessed sacrament hidden in the bread, with such reverence and fear that he laid hold of the loaf as if it might have been a baby. But he cocked a gun in case she should turn on him. And then he gave back the blessed sacrament. The nun was later on put in prison, beaten with rods, and underwent a kind of a bloody sweat from the terrific agony. Finally came the death march. And the bishop was put out in the march between two fellow Chinese prisoners. The communist colonel took a sack that was loaded with perhaps stones, weighed about 20 or 30 pounds, and tied it on the bishop's back, and then tied the rope in such a fashion that the weight would tighten the rope and he would eventually be choked to death in the march. But the communists would not kill anyone. The sister who told me this story was back in the line of march and she saw the communist colonel tie this bag around his neck and she broke the line of march and she said, don't do that. Look at the man. It was a kind of an H.A. homo. And the communist colonel looked at her and then to the face of the bishop and seemed to see pain for the first time in his life. Then he called her a dog and told her to get back in line. She watched the weaving of the prisoners as they made their death march. And after a, a mile or two, she caught sight of the bishop, still supported by the two fellow Chinese prisoners, but the sack was not on his back. It was on the back of the communist colonel. I said, why did the communist colonel take it off his back, off the bishop's back? And she said, because he once carried the Blessed Sacrament. The last we know of that communist colonel is that he was put in prison for helping the bishop. The bishop died on the death march. The sister today is still bearing the effects of it. And this bishop in prison, she told me, used to read Mass. He was the only one in prison who was ever given wine. Not through any act of charity on the part of the communists. This was just divine providence making it possible for him to say Mass. And she said, no Mass in the Gothic cathedral, surrounded by all the pomp of liturgy, could ever equal the beauty of this frail bishop, full of prison vermin and sores, leaning up against a wall with a tin tray and a loaf of bread and a small glass of rice wine.
moving his fingers over the tin tray and then pronouncing the words of consecration and during the day secretly giving communion to prisoners who had pronounced the right word, the code word, which was the same code word in the early church, fish. Why fish? Well, the Greek word for fish is ichthos. And in our letters, I-X-T-H-U-S, ichthos. And in the early church, the I stood for Jesus, the X for Christus, the Theu of God, U for we are Son, S for Sator, Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Then I could tell you, too, of the way that Mass was read at Dachau under the threat of the Nazis and how priests underwent every kind of torture to make it possible to offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. You're really assisting at Calvary. Realize its meaning. For there's a law that runs all through nature. We live by what we slay, the food that we have torn up from the earth, the animals that have been butchered. We live by what we slay. And through the marvelous paradox of divine grace, we who have crucified Christ by our sins, now through the mercy of communion, live by what we have slain. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and wow, our hour has gone by so quickly today. And I hope you've enjoyed these two reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on the topic of love and the meaning of the Mass. And so I'd invite you to join me next week. And until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.